namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami the clock wander somewhere. Okay. So it's helpful to be keeping an eye on it. So we have a couple of chapters left of this book and I think about five days of readings uh, remaining. So uh, looks like we're just cruising into the final straight in a comfortable way. So, thank you. So this next chapter, uh, chapter 8, is called Dependent Origination in a Social Context. Um, and in the, the other previous edition, this was chapter 7, and it was called Dependent Origination in Society. So far, the discussion has focused only on dependent origination as it occurs in the minds and lives of individual people. In the Mahanidana Sutta, however, which is a very important teaching and is the longest of all suttas describing dependent origination, the Buddha explained conditionality both in a person's mind and between people or in society. Following is a brief explanation of how dependent origination works on a social level. So the Mahanidana Sutta is one of the ones in the Diga Nikaya, the Long Discourses. As he says, it's the, the longest, the most extensive of, the, of all the teachings about dependent origination. The origination of suffering, or the origination of evil in society, proceeds in the same fashion as the origina origination of suffering in an individual, but the manifestation of social ills begins with craving. In the following passage, the Buddha highlights this link in the chain of dependent origination. And so, Ananda, feeling conditions craving, craving conditions seeking, that's pariyasana in Pali, Seeking conditions acquisition, laba. Acquisition conditions appraisal, vinichaya. Appraisal conditions passionate attachment, chandaraga. Passionate attachment conditions preoccupation, ajosana. Preoccupation conditions possessiveness, parigaha. Possessiveness conditions stinginess, macharya. Stinginess conditions protectiveness, araka. And dependent on protectiveness, as a, as a consequence of protectiveness, there arise the taking up of stick and sword, quarrels, disputes, arguments, strife, abuse, lying, and other evil, unskillful states. And in the little footnote, he says, uh, this group of qualities, from craving onwards, occurs in many places, but it's referred to as the, quote, nine qualities rooted in craving, the tanha mula, mulaka dhamma, and so it comes, comes up in quite a number of different places in the canon. Um, uh, so that's, uh, I think, a, a very um, sort of significant uh, reflection, and that this is from ancient times in societies and the human groups. It's the arguments over resources, competing for resources, um, just like we have this uh, terrible uh, war, the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, and... Um, people laying claim to particular territory, they want the resources, they want the, 
the power that comes with ownership of territory. Um, so food supply, uh, protection, uh, and uh, territorial advantage is uh, often the things, and, and weapons uh, that people fight each other for from ancient ancient times, uh, thousands of, of years ago. This is what human groups have been squabbling over, and as also in the animal realm, different animal groups squabble over resources, you know, competing for who's going to have access to the, 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 the trees with the fruits on, or the, the water hole, or the river, or the, uh, the protection of the hillside, and, and so on and so forth. So that um, the Buddha spells these out in these various different uh, qualities. But you'll notice that a lot of them relate to ownership. Who was it who was asking? It was, it was um, Alan was asking about ownership. We were talking about ownership the other day. Yeah, so a lot of it re revolves around ownership. I have this property. I have this, this, these things. This is mine. I'm keeping them. This is uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, and you're not going to get any possessiveness, stinginess, um, and uh, that sense of, of claiming my territory, my stuff, you know, my resources, my food supply, you know, my wealth, and, and you're not getting any, that, uh, that um, is a uh, sort of fundamental source of, of division and dukkha in societies so all, all around the world and from, from ancient times. So the, uh, uh, the Mahanidana Sutta um, is, let's see, I think it's sutta number 15, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Mahanidana Sutta, sutta number 15 in the um, Long Discourses. The Mahanidana Sutta thus introduces an alternative sequence of dependent origination, containing factors different from those manifesting in an individual. The factors shared by both formats are illustrated thus. Ignorance, volitional formations, consciousness, mind and body, six sense bases, contact, feeling, craving. So those are the same in that rendition and in most of the others. Uh, within an individual, when craving tanha arises, the process continues, as we are all familiar, uh, to grasping, becoming, birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, etc. In society, however, craving leads to these alternative factors. Craving leads to seeking, seeking leads to acquisition, acquisition leads to appraisal, appraisal leads to passionate attachment, which leads to preoccupation, possessiveness, and then to stinginess, protectiveness, and then quarrels, disputes, arguments, strife, etc. That is to say, social problems. The Kalaha Vivada Sutta, which is in the um, Sutta Nipata, I'll read that in a moment, contains similar material, but it's in the form of questions and answers, and is composed in verse, so it differs in some of the details. So I'll, uh, I'll read that now for our edification. So this is in the, um, the chapter of the Eights, the Atakavaga of uh, the uh, Sutanipata collection. And this is this is chapter eleven of the um, of the book of the eights, Kalaha Vivada Sutta. Disputes and contention. Sir, said a questioner, whenever there are arguments and quarrels, there are tears and anguish, arrogance and pride and grudges and insults to go with them. Can you explain how these things come about? Where do they all come from? 
Buddha replies, The tears and anguish that follow arguments and quarrels, said the Buddha, the arrogance and pride and the grudges and insults that go with them are all a result of one thing. They come from having preferences, from holding things precious and dear. Insults are born out of arguments and grudges. Uh, sorry. Uh, insults are born out of arguments and grudges are inseparable from quarrels. But why, sir, do we have these preferences, these special things? Why do we have so much greed? And all the aspirations and achievements that we base our lives on, where do we get them from? The preferences, the precious things, said the Buddha, come from the impulse of desire. So too does the greed, and so too do the aspirations and achievements that make up people's lives. From where, sir, comes this impulse of desire? From where do we derive our theories and opinions? And what about all the other things that you, the wanderer, have named? such as anger, dishonesty, and confusion. The Buddha replies, The impulse of desire arises when people think of one thing as pleasant and another as unpleasant. That's the source of desire. It's when people see the material things are subject both to becoming and to disintegration that they form their theories about the world. Anger, confusion, and dishonesty arise when things are set in pairs as opposites. The person with perplexity must train themselves in the path of knowledge. The recluse has declared the truth after realization. But why, sir, is it that we find some things pleasant and some things unpleasant? What could we do to stop that? And this idea of becoming and disintegration, could you explain where that comes from? It is the action of contact, of mental impression, that leads to the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. Without the contact, they wouldn't exist. And, as I see it, the idea of becoming and disintegration also comes from this source, from the action of contact. And then it goes into the more conventional format of the dependent origination uh, contents there. So that's in the Sutani Pata. This is Dr. Saratisa's translation, which is quite readable. He was teaching in Canada for quite a long time, so he... Um, uh, he translated this uh, and a number of other uh, sutta teachings into sort of readable um, and uh, uh, sort of understandable and digestible uh, English for Canadian undergraduates. So uh, it's a, uh, uh, sometimes he's been criticised for being not 100% accurate in terms of uh, Pali translation, but it is it's it's very readable. And he himself, I think, he had two PhDs in Pali studies and was a uh, a very accomplished scholar, so I don't have any doubt about him having the, the feel or the sense of, of the material, but this is very well worth uh, getting acquainted with if you wish to uh, look at that. So that's Chapter of the Eights, Sutta number 11, uh, Kalava, Kalaha Vivada Sutta, Disputes and Contention. So a any questions, thoughts before going on? Yes. Preoccupation, where your mind is uh, is preoccupied. It's occupied by something already. So like if you're the head cook for tomorrow, I mean, you're not till, <laughs> till April comes around, but if you're the head cook, uh, then I would suspect it would be natural to be preoccupied with what's in the, what's in the food store, what's in the larder, um, what should I put in the menu, what did we have yesterday, uh, all those things. You're preoccupied. The mind is, is taken up with a certain sets of perceptions, and then I'm responsible. I'm the head cook. It's got my name on it. And so that, um, and then 
the other part of that is then all sorts of other considerations and aspects of the world just get pushed aside because I'm preoccupied. Or like if you had an argument with someone, or if you had a, a tense exchange with somebody, then every, you know because of that, the tension of that exchange, and the, the memory of that, then most of the other people in the community disappear. Not physically, but they don't matter. They don't matter because of that. That replaying the conversation that you had and what you're going to do about it and what's going to come next and all of that, so that every, the other people that you live with <laughs> fade into insubstantiality. So your your mind is occupied. Uh, uh, in a way, it's it, it, that's the English usage of the word is, but it's more like we have given life to that particular issue. We've met the, the mind has given it importance. I mean, maybe you know, for a good reason, like it's your turn to be head cook. So <laughs> it's not necessarily a defilement or a problem, but it's um, the, the, the mind has, uh, has been so born into that, has given it life and given it substantiality uh, and uh, an extra level of value and meaning. So it's good to, to reflect when, um, uh, you know, how, how those things come and go. How, when somebody else is head cook, you're not thinking about the menu. When you're head cook, you are. <laughs> that, and they say, oh, look at that. This is the cause, this is the effect. That's all. It's just the way nature works. And then you're not, uh, the attention can go to things, but it's not getting born into them or obsessing or, or making a whole big story around it. That, uh, I've got to succeed. What will they think of me if I don't do well? Yeah. I'll be criticized, I'll be punished, I want to be praised, yada, 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 all of that, all the extra stuff the mind adds on to it, um, that uh, you can recognize, well, that's just a, an after effect of having this responsibility. If I didn't have the responsibility, that, that wouldn't be there. This is the cause, this is the effect. There's, there's really nothing there. The mind doesn't have to make a big thing of it. So the, in, in this sequence, the preoccupation is where the mind yeah, has been sort of bored into that was and that's it's picked that up and, and absorbed into it and so then Ajho uh, sana is the um uh is the word for preoccupation. Uh sana A double J H O S long A and A Ajhosana. Um and then that's the precondition for possessiveness. Like this is my territory, my things, I you know uh and then that that uh, feeds that sense of of ownership, and then that division between self and other, and the dukkha that goes with that. So best not to be preoccupied, be unoccupied. Yes. Um, I've got a question, but it's kind of uh, sort of uh, taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture, I suppose. Uh, in, uh, from an existentialistic point of view, uh, does, does the Buddha uh, kind of touch on what he might consider to be the purpose of, of, of life at all? Like, uh, um, I think uh, I, I've just been reading uh, Viktor Frankl, <laughs> A Man's Search for Meaning, and uh, yeah. he talks about uh, his experience in the, in the Nazi camps and he talks about how, you know, for example, things like some of the prisoners who were given any position were actually even more ruthless than, than the soldiers who were actually running the camp to, to their fellow 
uh, inmates. And you say that some people uh, would, would uh, give up, go and throw themselves in the electric fence because mm. they just didn't see the whole point of uh, you know, holding on. And in his assessment, he says that the, the people who survived till the end uh, were people who consider that to be some bigger purpose mm-hmm. to their life. So, so like the suffering in the camp sort of made, had meaning to them because they thought, okay, my life has got some bigger purpose mm-hmm. I'm trying to, uh, to, 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 to get to. So I don't, I, I'm, I'm just seeing as, as you're going through dependent origination and, and, and it seems uh, we, we come back to the issue of it's all about ignorance. People are, we are ignorant, so we create mm-hmm. all this. But then, uh, what, what is the point of it all? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, the Buddha very deliberately, does, there's, no, um, there's no answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? Um, the, the Buddha very deliberately narrows the, uh, the field down to rather than, than coming up with an idea of a meaning or a purpose, that, um, but he uh, uh, what he focuses on very deliberately, and he says over and over again, "I teach one thing: dukkha and the ending of dukkha." So he uh, he, he had a very comprehensive, you know, massively comprehensive knowledge and understanding of how everything works, and so he could have gone into those sort of philosophical details and explanations, but. He saw, seemingly right from the very beginning, this is the one thing that makes a difference. We don't have to have a, a, a huge sort of refined explanation just to see where it is that the mind gets out of balance and that the fact that that, that can be worked with in, 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 in the life of an individual and that balance can be restored. That there is, uh, so that all the rest is extra. So it's quite a deliberate exclusion of a vast amount of information and knowledge to focus on the, the one area where a genuine difference can be made. And so it's, a, um, it's quite a, 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 an unusual approach in terms of spiritual practice or philosophical uh, understanding. But, uh, and, and he was criticized in his own lifetime for being very narrow or, or not talking about these universal issues or you know, where do we all come from or what's it all for or you know, well, how is it all going to end. And he just was said that's not a useful question. What I teach is dukkha and the ending of dukkha, and that, and so that, the, and the dependent origination and, and this teaching on on causality is like right at the very heart of it. Is like this is um, the about the choices that the mind can make moment by moment, and the capacity to to be awake and to be in tune with reality, or to not be awake and to be out of tune with reality and. So after even after forty years in this in this field, it still amazes me how the Buddha just was like so on the mark, right, seemingly right from the beginning. He just saw there's no point trying to explain all the detail. This is the one thing that makes a difference. Okay, focus on that. And if I'm misunderstood, okay, so be it. I mean, he did give a vast amount of teachings. You know, eighty-four thousand sections of Dhamma teachings, they say in the Pali Canon, but it all hinges around. The very um, not all of it. I mean, there's a small percentage where he does talk in metaphysical terms, like where is the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, and so on. 
but that really is like one or two percent of the teachings and most of it is is how to see where the mind creates disharmony how to stop doing that you know how to establish the 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 uh, the attitude and the qualities of of attention that 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 lead to to harmony and being in accord with with nature so that um the uh, uh but i would say that you know for, for those kind of people that experiences that sense of of um the people who who really you know rose above it or were able to use that situation like like Victor Frankl or, or the other uh, i think the other day in one of the dhamma talks i was mentioning uh, Etty Hilesum, the letters from Westerbork, this young Dutch woman who was um, killed in one of the one of the, the camps, and this a series of letters that she wrote um, when she was in the camp, and then the last letter that she wrote was was on a on a card she threw out of the the the, the, the vent on the cattle truck on the way to the, the extermination camp, and it was found by a farmer, a Dutch farmer in the field, and that was her last message. And she uh, she refused to hate the Nazis. She refused to make them the enemy. She refused to, de- you know, that, and that was her way of, of uh, in a sense, not buying into the whole thing. That she just she would not hate. And so, in a way, she won. She she won the uh, the 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 issue because it's like like well, like the um, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, where in the Russian prison camp where. This man is given an impossible, as far as I remember the story, he's given an impossible task as a way of punishment. He says, okay, I'll do it. Even though it's totally impossible, that um, I'm not going to buckle under or beg for mercy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what you're asking, even though it's impossible. I, I'm, I'm, gonna, uh, I, I'm going to, um, to not be a victim. So that uh, <coughs> I would say all of those, um, and those are very extreme situations naturally, but there, these are the human heart being able to recognize that we are all bigger than this feeling of dukkha. We're bigger than hatred. We're bigger than than violence and and um, these sort of uh, ways that we we become so divided from each other. We're we're bigger than that. The heart is bigger than that. And so that the Buddha doesn't go into a lot of detail about you know exactly how that works or the uh, or you know exactly you know why that might be. He just, I will say, notice. You know, like a, a really extreme example he gives is like if you're being, if you've been ca- kidnapped by bandits and your arms and legs are being cut off with a two-handed, two-handed saw, that if you give rise to hatred to the people who are cutting you apart, then you're not following my teaching. You know, which sets the bar very, very high. But he's saying that um, that, yeah, in that. Um, uh, even in extreme dukkha, where you've got really good reason to hate, <laughs> you feel quite justified at being averse or feeling hatred towards the people who kidnap you and cutting you to pieces. That uh, that even when it's totally reasonable uh, or seemingly justifiable to hate, that's not that that can't be in the direction of of truth or reality. So don't go there. So rather you should. You should be thinking, I will abide a pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with loving kindness towards the people who are cutting you up. And so that um, that, uh, that advice is that, you know, that even in the most extreme situations where you would seem reasonable to be sort of defeated or to be buckling, buckling under or to be a victim or to just hate the people who are causing you harm and oppression, um, that 
in that kind of a teaching, you're saying, in this moment, it's up to this mind what you do with this. And that, um, that uh, even in extreme situations, that we don't have to be a victim, we don't have to, to go along with those you know, divisive and self-centered uh, reactions. Uh, uh, in Maikuti, um, uh, a lot of people have asked, I've got a picture of Master Shu Yun on my wall, it just happens to be opposite my computer terminal. So over the last couple of years, he, Master Shu Yun's appeared in a lot of Zoom calls <laughs> and teaching events. And people often ask, hey, who's that man on the wall? They often think it's Ho Chi Minh, because he's got a little wispy beard and they haven't shaved his head very, very recently. Uh, but he's the, one of the great spiritual masters of the, uh, of the current era, the, the modern era. He was born in 18... Uh, uh, 18 see, he was born in 1829, and, uh, no, born in you know, 1839 and died in 1959. He was 120 when he died. He made the vow to be a monk for 100 years. And uh, he stayed in China after the Communist Revolution, and he was so highly respected, he was appointed the, the head monk of, the, of all five lineages of Buddhism in China, which is unheard of previously. And uh, so he was a target for, the, for the, the Red Army. And so that they went to his monastery, and the Red Guard beat him up, first of all, with, with wooden clubs, and sort of left him unconscious with broken bones. And, and amazingly enough, he recovered. He was over 100 years old when this happened. Um, and so then he, he, he uh, was very badly injured, but he recovered. And, uh, and then when the, the, the Red Army found out that he was still alive, they went round again and they, they beat him up again using iron bars the second time. And he was in a coma for, for weeks and weeks. But, and even though he was over 100 years old and quite frail, he, he didn't die. And then eventually when he came out of the coma, then his disciples gathered around him and, and he was really smashed up, broken bones and damaged organs and... And uh, his disciples are saying, you know, Shufu, you know, we really love you and admire you and we, we're so grateful that you're, you're making this effort to stay alive, but please don't suffer all this pain and misery uh, for our sake. You know, if, if it's time for you to just relinquish the, the body and, and pass away, then please do. He said, it's true I'm not letting myself die, but it's not for you. It's for the people who beat me up. Because if I died uh, on account of the injuries they gave me, the karmic consequences for them would be so terrible. I, I, I wouldn't want to be responsible for that. So I'm staying alive, but it's for them, not for you. So that that's in in our age, those kind of things can can be done. People can so uh, draw upon that extraordinary spirit, and that um, and so that uh, you know those are those are examples that we can be inspired by. Uh, and so that, uh, for myself, I found that it's, it's going back to existential explanations and such, <laughs> I've appreciated more and more the, the, the simplicity of the Buddha's teaching. I see you know, one thing, dukkha and the of dukkha. And that I have a mind that really likes explanations. <laughs> you might have noticed. <laughs> I, like, I like explaining and I like explanations. But uh, over time, I've really come to greatly appreciate that just just focus on that one thing you know, <laughs> you, you know and the example I often give is like if you're playing in an orchestra you don't have to be able to write equations for what every instrument is doing in every moment in the whole orchestra you know how the air is vibrating in the trumpets or the, the uh, or the you know the skins are vibrating in the drums or the the um, 
the strings and the violins and the and the cellos, yeah, what you need to do is to pay attention to the to the the, the conductor, <laughs> and then uh, pay attention to the the part that you have to play and stay in tune, yeah, stay on the beat and stay in tune, and that's that's the task. And so, exactly how all of the instruments and all of the orchestra are working, don't worry about it. <laughs> Just pay attention to your your instrument, your piece, the, and to focus on the have one eye on your on your music, one eye on the on the conductor, and then be with each moment. Then the rest is extra. Okay, so to continue. <coughs> To help explain dependent origination as it relates to social conditions, one can examine associated processes that are mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. For example, the process of differentiation, nanata. And this is um, from the um, Sutta number 34 in the Diganikaya, which is a, it's a kind of a, a large collection of lists. And there's some theories that that this Sutta 34 in the, in the Long Discourses is the origin or the, the original format for the Anguttara Nikaya, like lots of lists or numerical lists of things. It's, it's, it's not a lot of narrative, it's just sort of lists of points. And so in that um, Sutta 34, um, the, the, um, the, I think it's called the Chanting Decades, or the Reciting Decades, uh, Maurice Walsh calls it, then there's this, this particular part where it talks about... Um, this process. The existence of various elements, datu nanata, leads to the various forms of contact, pasa nanata. This leads to the various kinds of feeling, vedana nanata, which leads to various perceptions, sanya nanata. That leads to various thoughts, sankapa nanata, various desires, chanda nanata, various passions, parilaha nanata. And that leads to various forms of seeking, Pariyesana nanata, and that leads to various forms of acquisition, laba nanata. So if you want to look that up, uh, Sutta number 34, section 2.2.4. Sutta 34, 224, yeah. Yeah. if you're at all interested in that. The first section of the above passage, from the elements to perception, can be summarized as various elements generate various perceptions. Another passage in the canon therefore represents this outline as follows. Various elements lead to various perceptions. Various thoughts lead to various desires. Various desires lead to various passions. Various passions lead to forms of various forms of seeking. And various forms of seeking lead to various forms of acquisition. These alternative presentations of dependent origination combine internal human dynamics with external social affairs. They present a wide perspective, revealing the source of social problems to be people's mental defilements. It may be said that those suttas explaining the wider implications of mental defilement, for example the Aganya Sutta, or the Chakavati Sutta and the Vaseta Sutta, are working models of dependent origination in a social context. And again, the Aganya Sutta is in the, the Diganikaya, and that's Sutta number 27. The Chakravati Sutta, that I might read from in a minute, is Sutta number 26. And the Vaseta Sutta is from the middle-length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya, Sutta number 98. There are a couple of important points to keep in mind when examining this form of presentation. 
The law of conditionality implies a dependency and a necessity between factors. In the phrase, feeling conditions craving, the arising of craving depends on feeling. Feeling is required for craving to arise. However, when feeling exists, it does not necessarily lead to craving. It's at this link between feeling and craving that the cycle of, the cycle of dependent origination can be severed, as corroborated by the Sutta passages mentioned earlier, which describe the arising of feeling without subsequent craving. And I was mentioned many times in the other book how that's the weakest link in the whole cycle, the link between feeling and craving. And that's what the many of the forest ajans focus upon as the sort of the, uh, the the target for the Dhamma practice is to get to know the the realm of feeling uh, very very closely and use mindfulness of feeling and noticing how that, that drifts into to craving. That's a key area of attention in the the forest tradition. <clears throat> when a person experiences feeling with adequate mindfulness and clear comprehension, the link is cut and craving does not arise. Note from the Mahanidana Sutta that the Buddha began his analysis of social woes at this juncture, where feeling conditions craving, Vedanang Pachaya Tanha. This link between feeling and craving is a crucial stage and has a direct bearing on human behavior and social well-being. Any questions, thoughts before we continue? Yes. So how would, um, say, an enlightened being relate to a feeling arising, so say um, seeing their mother for the first time in 20 years, something that evokes a lot of, uh, in the body and in the mind, a feeling, um, how would they relate to that? Would there be a, was there, I remember seeing a video of Ajahn Mahabur crying, you might have seen it, he's crying, he's crying mm-hmm. for mankind, and he's talking about, yeah, he sort of goes into, you know, people ask the question, like, why, you know, how can an Arahant cry, or you know, why is he crying? So is that to say that the feeling is felt still, uh, physically or emo- emotionally? Would, that, would it still be felt? But then it just wouldn't be, yeah, it just would pass that point, nothing else would, you know, there wouldn't be any more past that? Like it's quite strange, it's quite difficult to imagine what that experience is like to get to, to feel and then because you can't stop. Yeah, what what happens in that sort of? Well, the, the um, it's it's notable that um, great enlightened beings generally have a, a very close connection with their mothers. <laughs> Today's Mother's Day, so. and that um, and so that uh, even though it might not be very cuddly, or kind of um, in, in ordinary sort of familial sense. That's the, the the depth of connection and uh, and sort of respect and gratitude and, and love is there. And I would say is just. I mean, uh, my first thought when you ask that question is to find an enlightened being and ask find an enlightened being and ask them. <laughs> but just speaking from the explanatory, the mode, um, I, I would say yeah, the, the the feelings are there, but the mind is is also so clear it's not making anything out of it. So like in the little tree diagram above. Your head there, you'll see uh, that that the uh, everything diverges into feeling, and then feeling is headed by concentration, dominated by mindfulness, surmounted by wisdom, yielding deliverance as uh, as its essence, and emerging in the deathless, terminating in nibbana. So that the feelings are there, 
but because of mindfulness, concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom, then it's not suppressing them, but it's just knowing this is the feeling of being seeing your mother again after twenty years, or this is, um, or this is you know, your mother's life is coming to an end. So it it feels like this, and it, it, so it's not necessarily clinical or, um, or 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 just sterilized, but it's just not taken in a in a, a personal way. There isn't that. There's nothing there that can take it personally or attach to it or or uh, you know please mum don't go you know that there isn't anything there that would fuel that it's just the sense of of love and appreciation and closeness is there but the the mind isn't making making a, a uh, it's not possessive it can't be possessive around that it's recognizing that there's a closeness that has been there and that there's a a a, a, a um a strength of connection that's been there, and that's had its effect. Like the Buddha talking about the the the, the assembly feeling empty because Mahamogalana and Sariputra passed away. You know, he's in a big crowd of people, and he says it feels like the assembly is empty because the Sariputra and Mogalana are no longer here. So he's expressing that he's feeling that uh, it's an emotion, and that uh, and he remarks on it, but he's not complaining or getting upset. It's just that's the. That's the, the the quality that's there, and so that uh, uh, the <clears throat> recognizing that people are born, people are dying, you know, people separate, people come together, and that's part of the natural order, and that the the, the closeness that people have, even people, you know, great enlightened beings who are sort of famously detached, like uh, Sri Ramana Maharshi, or also like, like Ajahn Chah, you know, his. The main temple at Wabapong is built on top of where he cremated his mother. Cremated his mother. So when he came to start the monastery at Wabapong, she moved out of the village and came to live in the monastery. was one of his first non-disciples. And then when she died, um, he built this, or the whole Sangha, built this massive papier-mâché mountain. They were kind of weaving these baskets, these kind of... uh, bamboo baskets and covering it. was like a massive Sangha project for weeks and weeks, making this papier-mâché mountain in the middle of Wabapong. And so her body was in the coffin in the middle. And they had an entrance and an exit for the men and an entrance and an exit for the women, and her body was in the middle. And there was this this whole, literally sort of papier-mâché mountain that they built with, with caves and tigers and yogis and, you know, <laughs> the, whole, the whole deal, you know. Uh, and, uh, and then... Um, then when they, they came to the cremation, uh, I think Lumpur Chah gave a Dhamma talk in the in the sala, and they uh, and he wasn't even present when they lit the fire. He just he was in the sala. They lit the fire, and then uh, she was she was cremated. Um, so he didn't go to her her, her coffin side uh, you know, at the time when she, when they lit the fire. But he set this whole thing up to sort of give her a grand farewell. So people from all over the one in the northeast were coming to pay their respects for weeks and weeks you know, before she before she was cremated. And then he built his temple on top of where she was cremated. And Sri Ramana Maharshi did the same thing at the, the Ramana Ashram. That and he was like a super detached yogi, you know, just kind of incredibly unworldly in every respect. But mother. <laughs> She gets a special spot, and so again, it, w- it wouldn't have been a sort of cuddly, you know, how are you, mum? You know, kind of uh, uh, relationship. I would imagine uh, I wasn't there, but um, but then that sense of uh, that 
uh, appreciation and, and love and recognition is, is part of it. So, to continue. The suttas cited above describe how aspects of human society, like the caste system and differences in individual circumstances, result from human interactions and are influenced by the natural environment. Social conditions are shaped by the interdependency between human beings, beginning with people's mental qualities, society and the natural environment. For example, a person's feelings rely on contact, which is affected by social and environmental factors as well as internal factors like perception. When craving follows feeling, subsequent behavior may have an impact on other people and on the environment, so that all factors are affected. Human beings are not the only factor influencing society and the environment. Neither are society or the environment the only factor in influencing the other two. The three are interdependent. So that's uh, the human beings um, and the environment and society. They're all we're all affecting each other and the choices that we make, the, the things that we consume, the actions that we take, they impact and not just our lives, but the, the, the people and the resources around us, as we all know. Sections of the Aganya Sutta illustrate the process of conditionality. Individual, idle individuals hoard grain, and this practice becomes popular. This leads to areas are established for allocating grain. Greedy individuals then steal grain from others to increase their share. There arises censure, deceit, punishment and fighting, and wise individuals see the need for government. There develops the practice of electing a leader or a king, a katia. Uh, some people become disillusioned with the corruption in society and go to live in the forest to free themselves from evil and develop jhana. Some of these people live near populated areas. They study and compose texts. And the, and the term Brahmin, Brahmana, is coined. Those people who have families and pursue various forms of enterprise are called merchants, Vesa. Others whose behavior is considered vulgar or inferior are branded as low class, Sudda. This leads to members of each of these four groups abandoning their personal customs, renounce the household life. Sorry, then, but then uh, members of each of these four groups can abandon their personal customs, renounce the household life, and go forth as ascetics. This sutta shows that various castes and social classes are formed and conditioned by naturally occurring human relationships. They're not created by a creator God. Every person has the choice to perform good or bad deeds, and everyone will equally receive the fruits of their actions in accord with natural laws. And every person who cultivates the Dhamma correctly can reach liberation, can reach Nibbana. So both the Aganya Sutta and the Chakravati Sutta, they talk about these sort of evolutionary processes and uh, how things sort of how can degenerate in society and then the establishment of law. Also his comments about um, the, the caste system. In, in the Vedic system, then it's said that the various different castes appeared from Brahma, uh, the body of Brahma in different, uh, different areas. And so that uh, the... Um, the uh, the lower the lower caste is supposed to come from Brahma's feet, and then the um, uh, the the Brahmins, of course, come from the, the Brahma's the, the Brahma's head and so on in between. But um, rather than um, in the sutta, it's pointing out rather than being created by a, a creator god or those following that kind of mythology, it's um, the, the the teaching points out how these different groups evolved just because of the needs of. Uh, 
a human society and, and develop as they do. The Chakravati Sutta describes the conditions underlying crime and other social ills. Uh, government leaders do not provide financial assistance to the poor. This leads to poverty being rampant. With poverty rampant, then theft is rampant. This leads to the use of weapons, and then killing is rampant. This leads to the spread of lying, divisive speech, harsh and frivolous speech, sexual misconduct, covetousness, hostility, wrong views, attachment to unrighteousness, adhamma-raga, greed, injustice, lack of respect for parents, ascetics and Brahmins, and lack of respect according to social standing, the decline of beauty and longevity. So I thought I would read a, a bit uh, a passage from the Chakravati Sutta. He doesn't go into it in great detail there, but I thought it would be interesting to share. Again, these are both this and the Aganya Sutta. They should be understood as mythology rather than history. It's not. It's kind of symbolic forms, not, not sort of categorically. You know, it absolutely happened this way, but it's sort of cosmological forms or mythological forms that that um, uh, are good for reflecting upon. So the Chakravati Sutta, uh, Chaka is a wheel, Vati is a, 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 the turning of the wheel. And uh, the, the Buddha starts talking about the um, wheel-turning monarchs, which are part of a, a, of a sort of a mythology of the, uh, you find in Buddha Dhamma, of um, a kind of universal ruler. And that, uh, it's, it's a very long sutta, so I'll just read the significant part of it. So, this, this is, as I said, this is Sutta number 26 in the Long Discourses. <clears throat> Sire, as long as you rule the people according to your own ideas and differently from the way they were ruled before under previous wheel-turning monarchs, the people do not prosper so well. Sire, there are ministers in your realm, including ourselves, who have preserved the knowledge of how a wheel-turning monarch should rule. Ask us, your majesty, and we will tell you. So um, there, things have been getting difficult in the realm, and so these ministers are saying, we know how to do things, we'll, we'll, we'll explain, we'll tell you. Then the king ordered all the ministers and others to come together, and he consulted them. And then uh, they explained to him the duties of a wheel-turning monarch. And having listened to them, the king established guard and protection, but he did not give property to the needy, and as a result, poverty became rife. With the spread of poverty, a man took what was not given, thus committing what was called theft. They arrested him and brought him before the king, saying, Your Majesty, this man took what was not given, and we call that theft. The king said to him, Is it true that you took what was not given, which is called theft? It is, Your Majesty. Why? Your Majesty, I have nothing to live on. Then the king gave the man some property, saying, With this, my good man, you can keep yourself, support your mother and father, keep a wife and children, carry on a business, and make gifts to ascetics and Brahmins, which will promote your spiritual welfare and lead to a happy rebirth with pleasant results in the heavenly sphere. Very good, your majesty, replied the man. <laughs> okay, so far so good. <clears throat> However, and exactly the same thing happened with another man. Then... People heard that the king was giving away property to those who took what was not given. They thought, ah, suppose we were to do likewise. So yeah, rather than getting busted for, for, for thieving and burglary, you get handouts from the government. Suppose we were to do likewise. And then another man took what was not given, and they brought him before the king. The king asked him why he'd done this, and he replied, Your Majesty, I have nothing to live on. Then the king thought, hmm, 
If I give property to everybody who takes what is not given, this theft will increase more and more. I better make an end of him, finish him off once and for all, and cut his head off. <laughs> kings could do those things in those, you know, those capricious kings that, uh, that way. So he commanded his men, bind this man's arms tightly behind him with a strong rope, shave his head closely, lead him to the rough sound of a drum through the streets and squares and out through the southern gate, and there finish by inflicting the capital penalty and cutting off his head. And they did so. Hearing about this, people thought, now let us get sharp swords made for us, and then we can take from anybody what is not given, and we will make an end of them. Finish them off once and for all, cut their heads off. So having procured, so it's degenerated pretty fast. <laughs> it's gone downhill pretty quickly. Yeah. So having procured some sharp swords, they launched murderous assaults on villages, towns and cities, and went in for highway robbery, killing their victims by cutting off their heads. Thus, from not giving of property to the needy, poverty became rife, and the growth, from the growth of poverty, the taking of what was not given increased. From the increase of theft... The use of weapons increased. From the increase of use of weapons, the taking of life increased. And from the increase in the taking of life, people's lifespan decreased. Their beauty decreased. And as a result of this decrease of lifespan and beauty, the children of those whose lifespan had been 80,000 years lived for only 40,000. So again, this is very mythological territory. So that, uh, But also elsewhere in the... In the suttas, the Buddha talks how you know if you if you take life, if you kill living beings, then karmically that's likely to reduce your your lifespan. So their lifespan went from eighty thousand years to forty thousand years. What a, you know, it's a real struggle. Uh, and a man of that generation that lived for forty thousand years took what was not given. He was brought before the king, who asked him, "Is it true that you took what was not given? What is called theft?" "No, your Majesty," he replied, thus telling a deliberate lie. Thus, from not giving of property to the needy, etc., the taking of life increased, and from the taking of life, lying increased. From the increase in lying, people's lifespan decreased. Again, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 40,000 years lived only 20,000. And a man of the generation that lived for 20,000 years took what was not given. Another man denounced him to the king, saying, Sire, such and such a man has taken what was not given, thus speaking evil of another. Thus, from not giving of property to the needy, etc., etc., the speaking of evil of others increased, and in consequence, people's lifespan decreased again, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 20,000 years lived for only 10,000. And of the generation that lived for 10,000 years, some were beautiful, some were ugly, and those who were ugly, being envious of those who were beautiful, committed adultery with others' wives. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, etc., sexual misconduct increased. And in consequence, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 10,000 years lived for only 5,000. And among the generation whose lifespan was 5,000 years, two things increased, harsh speech and idle chatter, in consequence of which people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 5,000 years lived some for two and a half thousand years and some for only two thousand. And among the generation whose lifespan was two and a half thousand years, covetousness and hatred increased, and in consequence people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result the children of those whose lifespan had been two and a half thousand years lived for only a thousand. Among the generation whose lifespan was a thousand years, false opinions increased, 
And as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been a thousand years lived only for 500. And among the generation whose lifespan was 500 years, three things increased. Incest, excessive greed, and deviant practices. And as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 500 years lived some for 250 years or some for only 200. And among those whose lifespan was 250 years, these things increased. Lack of respect for mother and father, for ascetics and Brahmins, and for the head of the clan. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, etc., etc., the lack of respect for mother and father, for ascetics and Brahmins, and for the head of the clan increased. And in consequence, people's lifespan and beauty decreased. And the children of those whose lifespan had been two and a half, thousand, two and a half centuries lived for only a hundred years. Monks, a time will come when the children of these people will have a lifespan of ten years. And with them, girls will be marriageable at five years old. And with them, these flavors will disappear. Ghee, butter, sesame oil, molasses and salt. Among them, kudrusa grain will be the chief of food. And kudrusa grain... I didn't... He tells us... Is... A kind of rye. The dictionaries are less specific. That's the, it will be the chief food, just as rice and curry are today. And with them, the ten courses of moral conduct will completely disappear, and the ten courses of evil will prevail exceedingly. For those of a ten-year lifespan, there will, be, there will be no word for moral. So how can there be anyone who acts in a moral way? So they actually forget the word sila. It's like, it's like there's no way of, it's like things are degenerated. There's no way of talking about virtue at all. Those people who have no respect for mother or father, or for ascetics or Brahmins, for the head of the clan, will be the ones who enjoy honor and prestige, just as it, as, it, as it is now the people who show respect for mother and father, for ascetics and Brahmins, for the head of the clan, who are praised and honored, so it will be with those who do the opposite. Among those of a ten-year lifespan, no account will be taken of mother or aunt or mother's sister-in-law or teacher's wife or another or one of one's father's wives, and so on. All will be promiscuous in the world like goats and sheep, fowl and pigs, dogs and jackals. Among them, fierce enmity will prevail one for another, fierce hatred, fierce anger, and thoughts of killing. Mother against child, child against mother, father against child, and child against father, brother against brother, and brother against sister, just as the hunter feels hatred for the beast he stalks. So it's getting pretty bad down in the, 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 the depths of this cycle. And for those of a 10-year lifespan, there will come to be a sword interval, quote-unquote, of seven days during which they will mistake one another for wild beasts. So it gets to the bottom of the, the nadir of the whole process is this, what they call the sword interval, um, which is where everything has got so, so dire that just people are just taking up weapons and attacking each other randomly. Um, and... Um, it's called the Satantara Kappa. <clears throat> Sharp swords will appear in their hands and thinking, there is a wild beast. They will take each other's lives with, with these swords. But there will be some beings who will think, let us not kill or be killed by anyone. Let us make for some grassy thickets or jungle recesses or clumps of trees for rivers hard to ford or, or inaccessible mountains and live on roots and fruits of the forest. And they will do this for seven days. Then at the end of the seven days, they will emerge from their hiding places and rejoice 
of one accord saying, good beings, I see that you're still alive. So that, well, a few of us made it. We're still here. This kind of apocalypse, um, a kind of uh, post-apocalyptic um, misery. A few people coming out of the woods, oh my goodness, you're still alive. And, and you're not carrying a weapon, even better. And then the thought will occur to those beings, it's only because we became addicted to evil ways that we suffered this loss of our kindred. So, let us now do good. What good things can we do? Let's abstain from the taking of life. That'll be a good practice. And so uh, they will abstain from taking of life and having undertaken this good thing, will practice it. And through having undertaken such wholesome things, they will increase in lifespan and beauty. And the children of those whose lifespan was 10 years will live for 20 years. And so I won't go on, but uh, <laughs> then things uh, increase and they go back up to having a lifespan of 80,000 years. And I won't say they live happily ever after, but uh, that, that, the, uh, that cycle of uh, things collapsing and degenerating to a, a, a real um, destructive pit of, of, um, of, uh, of uh, aggression and hatred and fear, then uh, there's this, this, this spirit this kind of, uh, that, uh, that arises or in, the, in the hearts of a few people that say, let's not join in with this, we don't have to be part of this, let's just take off to the forest and we don't have to be this way. So that's uh, a, one of the um, sort of cosmological teachings. Again, it shouldn't be taken as history, but rather as, as a cosmological format. Um, and but I, I feel it's good to get to know those uh, those aspects of the Buddha's teaching and to reflect on that, and to see how, even though that's talking about things on a very grand scale, how that can be in our families or in communities or in our lives that you can you can. Uh, uh, by not living wisely, we can to, we can build up on those feelings of division and aversion and hatred and blaming the other. He did this, and she did that. I can't can't believe it. She did it again, and then we we create this kind of miserable uh, condition whereby it's just the, the sword interval in the kitchen or the <laughs> in the vihara. It's, the uh, everything is just it's him again, yeah. and that. Uh, so it's a it's a mythological pattern, but it's it's useful to think about because it happens in our viharas, in our university departments, in <laughs> the uh, you know, hospital wards, and and so on and so forth. The uh, that that's how we can be as human beings. But there is that that quality of wisdom. I'd say that gunatama, that that uh, that in the heart that loves the good that says, I don't have to be a part of this, or why am I doing this to myself, or why am I contributing to this? This this is crazy. Let's let's not join in with this. Let's not be part of it. And that we we have that amazing capacity to recognize that even in the midst of a great difficulty and misery. That I don't have to contribute to this. I don't have to add. I don't have to make this worse. I can leave this alone. And I feel that uh, that's uh, one. It's, it's obviously on a sort of grand mythological scale, but it's it's representing that that strength of human wisdom and the human goodness that is uh, accessible to us even in the most uh, difficult and challenging times and that can really turn things around in a very substantial way. So, yes. Can I ask a question? Sure. Yeah. Um, that uh, last sutta, it all starts from the fact that government isn't supporting the poor people. And in terms of the government getting resources to support poor people, I mean, quite often, you know, they collect taxes. So if you're enforcing taxes, is that some kind of taking that which is not given? 
So, you know, I want 20% what whatever you earn, and I'm going to, you know, force you to pay that so that I can then share it out with poor people. Would I be taking something, you know, as a governor, would I be taking something that's not given? Good question. <laughs> um, the Buddha did reflect that when he was sitting in the Himalayas, Mara came along and said, you know, you could be a fantastic ruler. <laughs> you know, you've got the wisdom, you've got the virtue, you've got the, the charisma, you could be a great ruler. Um, you could really govern according to Dhamma. And the Buddha reflected, no, <laughs> it's impossible to be a political leader without sequestering property, without imprisoning people, without uh, acting in, in unwholesome ways. And so that is an interesting, it's not a very long sutta, but it's, it, it's uh, uh, one of those, it's like it, it indicates precisely why the Buddha didn't take up political leadership. And he says, you know, you really, basically if you're in politics, it's extremely hard to be virtuous. The whole system is rigged to not support virtue. I used to, there was a, a Buddhist lawyers group in San Francisco that I used to, <laughs> very small group of Buddhist lawyers <laughs> in San Francisco, about five or six of them. And it was the, uh, predictably, the, the, the fourth precept was really tough, you know, Musawada. Because like, uh, uh, it's really hard to be a lawyer and to tell the truth. So because you know you're, you you as a lawyer, at least I don't know what the, how it works in in the UK, but in America, it's a, 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 to to be qualified as a lawyer, you have to be you have to vigorously defend your client's interests, even if you know your client is a total sleazeball, and, uh, is, is guilty as as can be, it's up to you. So that there was long discussions about the fourth precept and being a lawyer. <laughs> so that, uh, but uh, most of the lawyers I knew ended up not being lawyers for, for a lot longer. Not all of them, but uh, there's, uh, some of them would do um, public defending or, or pro, you know, charity work to, do, to offer their services to poor people. But um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to enter the political arena and not be contravening some of the precepts. It, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's, it's definitely challenging. I wouldn't try it myself. Okay, I think that's enough for today.